Hey, what's good, fam? We appreciate you tuning in to the South City Church Podcast. It's our prayer that as you hear the better story of Jesus, you might experience more of his redemptive power in every square inch of your life. Hey, we're a church plant. We benefit greatly from outside support. So if you'd like to partner with our ministry here, you can go to southcityrva.com slash give and join us in seeing strangers made family in Christ in Richmond and beyond. God bless and shalom. Well, good morning again. Uh, it is always a blessing and privilege to be with you guys. So thanks for welcoming me back. Um, I don't know how many of you guys are kind of amidst the summer rhythm of being in and out of town. Our family just got back from a trip to upstate New York to visit uh, the home where my grandpa grew up, up on Lake Champlain. Uh, and so that was a long voyage with a three-year-old daughter and a one-year-old daughter and a pregnant wife. Uh, but we made it. And there were a couple of themes that stood out to me from that trip. One was like this feeling of going home that like even though that wasn't the place where I grew up, there still is this connection and sense of family, uh, great aunts and uncles and third cousins and people I'd never seen before that are related to me showed up on the lake to spend a week together. Uh, and so there was this sense of kind of going home and rediscovering identity through family. And then the other thing that stood out to me uh, was, I'll remember it and now I've forgotten it. You know, it didn't stand out that strongly if I can't remember it on the spot. One was this returning home, uh, and I'll, I'll remember the other one eventually because it's a theme that I'm going to return to. But again, yeah, thank you for having me this morning. The, the big overarching question, we're going to be in the Old Testament looking at a particular story this morning, and the big overarching question I want to ask and I want to challenge you to ask of yourself is what are you trusting in? I think we all implicitly trust in something. You all came in and grabbed a spot to sit down, probably didn't even think about whether the pew that you sat down in had the strength to hold you, but you trusted that it would and you sat down. And we do these types of things instinctively and intuitively, uh, even on bigger levels. What are you trusting with, with your life? Uh, what are you trusting in for purpose and satisfaction and meaning and identity in your life? And then we do it on smaller scale things. We trust that the food served to us was clean and well prepared and cooked thoroughly. You sat down in your chair this morning. We're going to ask that question, particularly looking at the story of Daniel. So if you want to turn your Bibles to the book of Daniel, we're in chapter 6 this morning, uh, looking at the character of Daniel. I want to set the scene and get us to kind of where we are in the narrative of Scripture, in the narrative of the Old Testament, particularly. God's people have been on this journey uh, to be together with the Lord. They go on a, a long journey, we hear about in the story of Exodus, of uh, coming out of exile, coming into God's presence, becoming a people, uh, being given a land, and then the temple, a place where God dwelt with his people. But where we find the nation of Israel this morning is again in exile, now under the control of the nation of Babylon. Because of their repeated disobedience, uh, God brings judgment and uses this evil nation who doesn't serve him uh, to bring his people under judgment, the nation of Babylon. Literally, the people of Israel would have had hooks in their flesh and drug away from their homeland into a land that they didn't know. And we're introduced in the book of Daniel to this character of Daniel as a young man. And he faces a series of trials 
Uh, one of the big themes of the book of Daniel is how do we trust God and remain faithful in a foreign land? As living as exiles, the first test, test that Daniel undergoes is whether he'll eat food uh, that aren't in keeping with the laws of Israel, the laws of God. Uh, he proves faithful through that test. God blesses him. He becomes uh, a person of import and stature in that culture. Uh, he's given the ability to interpret dreams, and so the king of Babylon kind of brings him close as a counselor and advisor, and he raises to power. We get this other scene of trial uh, and attesting of faithfulness with Daniel's three friends who are sent into a fiery furnace because they won't worship foreign gods and idols uh, rather than the one true God that they serve, Yahweh. And again, they're shown faithful, how to live faithfully in a foreign land. And then in the story where we are this morning is in Daniel chapter 6. And what I want to do is read through this story together. You're welcome to read along with me if you brought a Bible or have one on your phone. Um, but you can also just, however it is best for you to enter into the story and imagine what it would have been like to embody this story. I invite you to do that if you want to close your eyes, if you want to just listen to me tell the story, or if you want to read along. We'll start in Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O oh, King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had the windows open in his upper chamber toward Jerusalem, he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God, and they came near and said to the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, 
or the injunction you have signed, but makes petition, makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish, he declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So again, I'd ask you, what are you trusting? We see two examples in the story this morning. One is Daniel's prayer, and then the second is the king's confession. Two examples of where we put our trust. First, Daniel's prayer. If we look actually at the content of Daniel's prayer, he, it doesn't say what he prayed, but I wonder if you picked up on this, on this phrase, and I even illustrated that he turned with his window open and knelt towards Jerusalem. What's meant by that? I've been walking with Jesus for a number of years. Drew even walked with me through a season of life. He never taught me to open my window and pray towards Jerusalem. I don't know if that stands out as odd to you, but I think the key is in 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 48. 
when the temple is constructed under the reign of Solomon, he prays for the people, and this is what he says. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the house that you have built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carry them captive, that they may have compassion on them. See, even King Solomon, in the giving of the temple, knew that the people of Israel wouldn't always walk in obedience and in perfect fellowship with God, that they would always need God's gracious activity towards them to forgive them, to invite them into his presence. And if there was such a time where because of their disobedience they were drawn into another land, they could there repent and cry out to God, his land... Israel, his city, Jerusalem, and the place where he dwelt, the temple, and God would deliver them from that land. And so I think in Daniel's posture of prayer, we learn what he was praying. He was praying the promises of God. God, would you deliver us? God, would you forgive us for our sin? And would you bring us back home again? Maybe you're familiar with this more out of uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Uh, if we repent and humble ourselves, then God will heal our land. Uh, you might have seen this plastered on a bumper sticker somewhere on a Facebook post. So I think the question is, is this, is this a one-to-one promise for us today? Is this, is this speaking about really any nation that turns back, or is this a particular promise to the people of Israel? Uh, and I think it makes more sense that God is speaking actually to his people rather than to a particular nation state. Uh, and we see these promises fulfilled in Christ, that if we humble ourselves and repent, then God will hear our prayer in Christ and forgive us and invite us into his presence. Uh, And so I think here for us, as we think about what Daniel prays, certainly we too pray the promises of God, but there's a bit of a warning and an encouragement there that we don't take hold of promises that actually aren't to us, and then an encouragement to know what are the promises that God has made to us. And in times of trouble and in times of trial, what do we hold on to but to what God has promised to us as people? I think it's also instructive how Daniel prays, not just the content of his prayers. Certainly the content of his prayer is revealing a sense of trust in God. God is who he promised to be. He will be faithful. I can cry out to him. But also the manner in which he prays is instructive. It's patterned and deliberate and persistent. You see that pattern of opening the window, kneeling down three times a day as he was in the habit of doing, as he had done previously. He's being deliberate deliberate about his posture. He's bringing himself low and humbling himself before the Lord in prayer. And then it's persistent. Where we find Daniel in chapter 6 is not as a teenager just fresh arriving in Babylon, but as an old man. So this is a habit that he's cultivated over decades of praying three times a day, repeating the promises of God, uh, cultivating that sense of deep trust. And so I think we see pretty clearly what does Daniel trust in. He trusts in the Lord that he serves, that despite the circumstances, despite the consequences, it says he heard the decree. He knows he's not supposed to be doing this in the land where he finds himself, and yet he clings to God. And so I think the question is, is God worthy of his trust? He certainly seems to think so. I think if we're honest with ourselves as we look at Daniel and the trust that he models, we have to admit 
that we are often not like Daniel. And I now remember the second part that I remember from vacation, which was all the fun that we had swimming in the lake. And my three-year-old daughter in particular, particular loves the water and has no idea how to swim and is pretty terrified of the water at the same time of enjoying it thoroughly. So she loved to get like right on the edge of the dock and I'd get out in the water and she would jump out to me. But she reflected her lack of trust in her father in that she always wanted to like hold a finger at least before she would jump. Like my hands would be right in front of her. Like there's no way you hit this water without encountering me between you and the water. And yet she wanted that assurance of actually touching me before she would hurl her body into the water. And I think that is often our posture to the Lord and our trust of him. We can trust that he's promised to be who he said he would be, that he'll be faithful. And yet we're like, can we just hold your finger though? Like, what if you're not? Uh, I know that's true for me. And yet we're given promises that assure us we can trust in a God who will catch us. Proverbs 3 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths or make your paths straight. This command, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Why should you trust in him? Because if you trust in him, he's actually able to guide you and to be your companion along the way. Trusting in the Lord is like driving a car at night. You can only see as far as the headlights will illuminate in front of you, but that's as far as you need to see to make the whole trip. The analogy maybe breaks down because you've got your phone GPS pulled up and you can just keep driving with that, but if you, if you had a GPS for life and every turn was anticipated and every reroute was anticipated, then you actually wouldn't need this kind of dependent trust in the Lord to walk with him step by step by faith. Jesus himself, promises this kind of companionship to us in his word. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, he promises his disciples, surely I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. We can trust that God will be who he says he will be, that he will always be with us, even in the difficult moments of life. The reality is that the things we trust in and hope in are exposed in times of trial. This is true for Daniel, but it's also true of the king. In verse 14, I'll draw your attention there, verses 14 and 15. I think we see this realization that the king realizes his own weakness. He's distressed when he hears what he has to do. He sets his mind to deliver Daniel, and he's laboring all day trying to rescue him. And yet he realizes he's limited and weak that the day is running short and he can't sort out a way to save his friend and his trusted advisor. Daniel's among three who are high officials above these other 120 officials. And he has set his mind to set Daniel over the whole kingdom. He doesn't want to kill Daniel and throw him to the lions. He wants to deliver him. And yet even the king is weak. He's also constrained by his, his own self, his own decree that he can't change. But is he really fully constrained by that. Like, he's the king. He could, he could do something else to undo what he had done or protect Daniel, find some way around it. He's also constrained by his pride and by his need of the affirmation of the other officials. 
Do you notice that they kind of insert themselves while he's trying to deliver Daniel to remind him, hey, you can't actually change this. Like, you made, you made the decree. So he's also strung by his own pride. And in that moment, I think we hear a genuine confession of God's power in verse 16. When the king declares to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. This is maybe not a faith claim uh, that the king starts walking in obedience to Yahweh in this moment, but I think it's this confession of, I'm weak and powerless to do anything for you. You, Daniel, seem to think that your God can deliver you, and so may that be the case. May your God actually be who he says he is and deliver you from the lions. I think in thinking about this, I'm struck by my own wrestling to fully trust, to fully depend on God, whether that's disappointment with him. I think all of us have our fair share of why is this happening? How long will this suffering endure? Uh, For our family, we went through like a weird, crazy transition in 2020 because of COVID. We were living overseas and kind of in the course of a week had to make some hard decisions to fly back uh, with our then three-month-old daughter and just kind of sort things out on the other end. And there are people that journeyed with us through that and we relied on family and, and it was okay. But there was, I mean, for me, years of wrestling with God and the disappointment of the ending of that season of our life and the beginning of the transition to another season of life not being the way that I wanted it to be. And the recognition of, like, I didn't cause this. The brokenness of the world and uh, sin and, and the brokenness of human structures are, are causing evil and pain to come upon me. And so how long? How long will this keep going, God? A deep sense of disappointment and having to lament and pray and ask for the Lord's kindness to us in that season. But I think there's also a sense... And so it's hard, it's hard on the back of that to say, God, I trust you completely. Like, I don't need any extra assurances. I know you'll be who you, who you said you will be when I'm struggling with, but you've disappointed me before. I know what it's felt like to trust in you and then to be disappointed because it didn't, it didn't come out like I wanted it to. I also wonder if, if this is hard for us because to some extent, we're like the king and we reach the end of ourselves. Uh, for me, I felt this just feeling incompetent in the work that I'm doing, and it's just fruitless effort, and it's like, am I ever going to figure this out? Am I, is this ever going to produce any results? Why am I doing this day after day? That's really reflecting a, a pride and a self-sufficiency. If I could just control my work, if I could just be good at it, then like life would be great. Um, maybe it's some other sin struggle. Maybe it's a gambling addiction or pornography or alcohol, or overspending, or chronic debt. That when trial comes, it reveals, I actually haven't been living in a deep dependence on God. The reality is that we need something to deliver us from these things that we think we can put our trust in, that we think will save us and deliver us and keep us safe and give us security and satisfaction. So that brings us to the king's final declaration. When Daniel is found alive, 
and brought up out of the den, the king declares in verse 26, that all people are to tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Sounds like gospel language. The living God. We serve a God who is risen and alive. Whose kingdom shall never end. Who is able to deliver us and rescue us from the power of sin and darkness to light and life. God's redemptive activity is demonstrated in Daniel's life. That he delivers him from the den of lions. But I wonder if you also picked up on this, on this gospel motif. As I was driving up this morning from Roanoke, I left my house in the dark and came through the darkness and fog to just a beautiful sunrise over the Blue Ridge Mountains and up into the Shenandoah Mountains before I got on 64. We see that kind of motif, motif in the story of Daniel and then in the gospel, from darkness to light. If you saw it there, at the end of the day, that the king goes to the palace and spends the night fasting and sleep fed from, fled from him. It goes down into darkness. And then in verse 19, at the break of day, it comes back up into light and resurrection. And in the same way, Christ ascends the hill and dies for us at the darkest possible moment in human history. And in a moment that we should be filled with despair and hopelessness and a lack of trust that God can deliver what he said he would deliver. Certainly the disciples were reading it this way as they fled and trembled in fear. This guy, Jesus, who we thought was the Messiah, who we thought we could trust, who we thought had the power to deliver us, is now dead. And yet in that darkest of moments, the next Sunday morning, he rises up again early in the morning. Even reminded of the women who rushed to the tomb early in that morning to see the stone rolled away because Jesus had risen. Christ crucified, dead, and buried, but Christ also risen and coming again. John chapter 1 and verse 9. You're welcome to turn there with me. picks up on this theme of darkness and light. John writes, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Our sense of darkness and sin and despair Christ enters into as the light of the world and rises again in victory over, offering us salvation, a free offer, a full pardon of life, of forgiveness and hope. 
So I want to ask you again, what are you trusting to save your soul? And invite you to trust in God, who's proven time and again in the life of Daniel and most fully in the life of Christ that he is the one who is able to save. And I wonder if you've made that decision that ultimately you would say yes and amen to that. I do trust Christ for my life, for my soul, for my eternal destiny. You're just struggling to trust him with tomorrow, uh, with your own children, with a walk of simple obedience in what he's asking you to do from his word, uh, and a persistent worry and fear about the future, uh, or where is the money going to come from next week or at the end of this month? So I want to offer you even more assurance back in the story of Daniel that God is a God who is worthy to be trusted. I skipped over this line the first hundred times I've read this story. And it stood out to me. In verse 28, Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This small, seemingly inconsequential biographical detail at the end of the story. Cyrus the Persian. Darius is the king in the story. Why is Cyrus mentioned at the end? Is it just a transitional phrase into the next chapter? What's happening here? The original audience who would have read this book would have noticed that small detail because they would have understood it was signaling what they had already come to receive, that Cyrus the Persian would be the one to sign the decree to bring the people of Israel back out of then the Persian government, back into the land, back to Jerusalem, back to, re to rebuild the temple where God would dwell with his people. So in this small biographical phrase, the author is assuring the people of Israel, God will keep his promises to you. He won't just deliver Daniel from the lion's den. He'll deliver you from this captivity and bring you all the way home to be in his presence again. And for us, we can stand confident that God will fulfill his promises to us in Christ. So again, I'd ask you, what are you trusting in? Is it powerful? Is it satisfying? Does it give your life meaning and purpose? Does it fill you with hope? Maybe like the king, you came in this morning finding it lacking and not actually able to deliver on whatever you hoped it would deliver. So then, what if Jesus is who he says he is? Is he powerful? He said, peace be still, and the wind and waves obeyed him. Is he satisfying? He said, I am the bread of life. Does he provide meaning to your life? He said, these are his words from his mouth, I came that they might have life and life abundantly. Does he fill you with hope? He said, in the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So the question is really, do you believe that Jesus is who he said he is? And will you trust him, not just with eternal salvation and new life, but with, with tomorrow, with every day? with every little step of obedience, to walk with him step by step. If you've already trusted in Christ, uh, then I'd ask you to ponder what is that next step? What is that small act of obedience that God is calling you to as you're walking with him and studying his word 
What is, he ask, what is the command that he's asking you to obey that you just need to take the next step in? Uh, or maybe it is, what is a promise of God that you need to take time to memorize and meditate upon so that when trials come, there's something to hold on to that you can be sure of uh, that will hold you fast during that time of trial? I'll end with this quote from uh, the late Tim Keller, uh, pastor and author. He says, don't come to Christianity because it's relevant, though it certainly is. Don't come to Christianity because it's exciting, though absolutely it is. Don't come to Christianity because it'll meet your needs, though it certainly will. Come because it's true. And because it's true, it'll meet your needs, it's exciting, and it's relevant. Can I pray for us? Father, thank you for the deep, satisfying, hope-giving work of Christ. That we, who actually were not found faithful, were given the faithful one in our place to live and to suffer and to die in our place, that we might have life and deliverance from the darkness and bondage of our own sin, the darkness and bondage of this world. Father, would you help us to more deeply and truly trust in you, to walk with you by faith and to hope in your Son you've given to us. Thank you for the assurance and the promises that we have in your word, that this isn't guesswork, um, that we have strong reason to believe that you are who you say you are, that you are God who is able to deliver and rescue. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.